Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Isadora Verjao. She's an engagement producer for Retro Report. She's Brazilian. She got her journalism degree in Brazil and got a master's degree from Craig Newmark School of Journalism at City University of New York. She's worked extensively in Brazil and is now in her fourth year working for Retro Report. Also of note, she's trilingual. Hi, Isadora. Hello. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm feeling so fancy. (laughs) What's your journalism origin story? Well, my origin story, my journalism origin story is also the origin of me because my parents met when they were reporters working for a newspaper in Rio de Janeiro, my hometown, and and I'm an only child. So I grew up around news, like news magazines, the news on the TV, daily newspaper lying around, and my parents talking about politics, whatever was happening. My mom always worked in a newsroom as an editor, so she would come back home every day, super late, super stressed, talking about the things that happened. You know, it was a hard time for women in the 80s and the 90s, being a news- in a newsroom is much different now. So I was in the middle of that, right? And I think a lot of people who are only child will agree, you kind of like, you're like a tiny adult, you know, because you're like around your dad and your mom all the time and you're listening to their conversation and trying to understand what they're talking about and trying to participate. So I was in there, I was visiting newsrooms since a very young age. I would see those big machine printing papers and, and it was fascinating to me. Oh, all right. So from there, you go to school and I mentioned you went to college in Brazil. What was your kind of path to to path, I guess, essentially to get to CUNY Newmark? Oh, my God, what a long winding road. So I actually wanted to be an actress. <laughs> I I took, I went to theater school as, as, as a child. And then as a teenager, I started working as an actress in a local theater that had a place for children every weekend. And that that was actually my first job. So I was 19 and and I and I loved that. And I was in all those productions that were like bootleg versions of Snow White and, and The Little Mermaid. I was flounder in Little Mermaid, by the way. And and I really wanted to be in theater and it was such a good a good and big part of my life. But what happened is that I did not get accepted into theater school and and my parents also didn't want to pay for a private theater school. So I would either have to be admitted at a public theater school and in Brazil, public universities, they are tuition free. So they, they are very coveted. It sometimes takes people years to, to, to get admitted or, or be offered a position, but I couldn't do that, and and I applied for some journalism colleges, and you know, at the end of the day, growing up with my parents and seeing how, not how hard their lives were, but you know, we're working class, journalists have been, have not been compensated fairly for, you know, a long time. It's not a an issue of today. And I didn't really want that life for me. My mom was always stressed out. You know, there was always issues with money. I really didn't want that. But on the other hand, my dad was always incentivating me and and encouraging me to read, to write, to think critically about things. I was very interested in stories and news. I was an asthma kid, so I couldn't really run and play like the other kids. So I would read a lot. That was my favorite thing. And then I loved stories. That's how I got adrenaline rushes and how that's how I, I, you know, went on adventures and connected with characters. So in a way, I think I was prepared my whole life to go into journalism school, even though I did not want to do that. I got a scholarship in a private university in Rio 
which you didn't say it, but we call it PUC, uh, but it's the Catholic University. There are a lot of Catholic universities um, in Latin America, and they are very good. I was pretty much a star student, because if there was a thing that I knew how to do very well, it was to read, to write, to tell stories, to be creative, to just my passion for storytelling just came so naturally because it was a part of my life since, you know, childhood. And it really, things really worked out. And and I got the internships that I wanted. I was, you know, highly recommended by my peers and by my professors to jobs. And at some point I decided to migrate from working in a newsroom to working as a public relations because basically it was no surprise I wasn't making enough money as a reporter and I really wanted to get my independence to move out of my parents house so I went on to work for the government in different ways I worked for the Ministry of Health for the Ministry of Science and Technology and for the mayor's office and and that's something that journalists in Brazil will do at times. It's also a natural transition to go from a newsroom to the other side, being like a communication specialist or or a communications advisor of public relations. I understand that's not the case here, and that's very funny. I did that. I worked for the government. It was great, but actually, as I think more about it, I wasn't really happy working in public relations. I was missing journalism, but I was also not seeing myself in the journalism scene in, in Rio because people were still not being paid well enough. They were still, you know, just just having challenges with, you know, toxic leadership and management. And at some point, the economic crisis came and I decided to come to the U.S., and it was very impulsive of me. Actually, I came for a trip with my mom. And at the end of the trip, three weeks later, I decided I was not going to go back to Brazil. Wow. I was just, yes. I was just going to stay here and see what happens. And eight years later, I'm still here. <laughs> Now, you were, you were at uh, Craig Newmark School, as I mentioned, and one thing that you did there was uh, blend your passion for theater and your passion for journalism with something called the Women Against Violence Experiment. We'll get to Retro Report in a second, but I did want to touch on this. Uh, it's a unique way to tell a story that you felt needed to be shared to and about Latina immigrants. You did two things. You created a bot and you wrote a play. Can you explain what you did? Yes, of course. So the program, which right now calls them, it's called Engagement Journalism Program at the New Mark School. It's an amazing school. I, in my time here in New York, and that was around the time Trump was elected, I felt a urge to, to go back to journalism, but to go back to journalism to do something very specific to help the immigrant community to report on the on immigrant issues, to help immigrants access the information that we're lacking because, you know, I was an immigrant. I needed information. I was having a hard time navigating the country, navigating this new time in which, you know, there was all this hate and then, you know, we didn't really know who we could trust and and it was just a weird time to be alive and so much misinformation going on about you know, the intentions of immigrants when they come here and what they do. And if are they stealing jobs or are they contributing to the economy? I just felt I needed to be part of that conversation. And and I would be of help by doing the thing that I knew how to do most, which is, you know, being a journalist. But I also acknowledged that I was very, I acknowledged that my toolkit was somewhat outdated and rusty because it had been so many years since I had been last in a newsroom reporting. And uh, and I was like, I think I just need to go back to school. And CUNY was the perfect fit. It has this program that encourages journalists to 
really a focus on marginalized communities and on solutions that help marginalized communities access information to really serve those people that journalism for so, so much time neglected, for so long covered on a basis of, you know, exploitation or sometimes perpetuating stereotypes. You know, people of color know exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, being in this country and being an immigrant and being a Latina here, it felt natural to me to take, to do this program to learn what, you know, the greatest city in the world is doing in terms of journalism innovation and to really get the tools that I needed to be a journalist here because it's hard, right? Journalists work with the language and I am not a native speaker. I learned English as a teenager. So there's a lot of self-doubt and imposter syndrome, but I really wanted to do this. And CUNY really supported me. And, you know, and, and, and it was great because I had to unlearn so many things as a reporter. I had to unlearn all the practices of, you know, how when you're reporting and you just want to get the quote, or sometimes you go into a story and you kind of like already know what the outline of the story is. You just want to find the sources and the quotes that will help you like get nice package out. And then next to the, you know, just let's get, move on to the next thing. I had to learn all of that. I relearned how to interview people. I relearned how to do my homework when it came to understanding the communities that I was reporting on, really taking time to getting to know people's history, their cultural backgrounds before I would get into any stories or any articles. So during that period, I chose to focus on the Latina immigrant community. And I found through my connections that a lot of women and men as well during the Trump administration, they were paying people to marry them so they could get the green card. And I has, had access to these people. And I really wanted to report on that and report on all the challenges that come with having to pay some, not having to pay someone, but thinking that's your last resort to be here legally and be able to work here legally. You're paying someone to marry you. And then you go on and two years of just pretending that you have a life together, filing taxes together and having your bills like go to, you know, that person's apartment. And then you go through immigration interviews in which you have to lie. And I was, I was just witnessing all of that with my friends. And I was like, this is some great journalism right there. How the Trump administration is, you know, making these people feel like they have to do that. And so many people lost money. So many people ended up in abusive relationships. So many people got entangled in so, such hard situations. But then I learned that the community actually did not want me to talk about it. They did not want this to be on the news. They did not want any attention to that because they were doing that and they wanted to be over with it and just never look back. They were ashamed, but they felt that they had to do that. So I was confronted with the fact that I'm doing this program in which I need to serve this community that I chose, that I care about, this community that I belong to. And they're telling me that the thing that I want to talk about, they do not want to have that being talked about in media. They don't want people like, you know, just, you know, talking about it and having opinions about it. And then if you think about a traditional journalist, they, and when I say traditional journalist, just let's say an old school journalist, right? Someone from like my parents' generation. I don't think they would care about that, right? If they get the interview and they got the quotes, okay, you're, you're talking on the basis of anonymity, but I have the story, I want to run the story. I think the story needs to be out there. That's what you do. But I didn't do that. I heard them and I was like, okay, so what should I talk about? What should I be reporting on? And that's when I found out that immigrant women were Brazilian immigrant women. They were having a lot of challenges being in domestic violence situations. The consulate was 
receiving a lot of people with this issue asking for help. Pro bono attorneys and the consulate were saying that, you know, it's been, it, it has, there's a surge in, in people asking for help because of domestic violence and that you should report on that, actually. You should look into that because, you know, people here, they sometimes they don't speak English. They don't know how to navigate the immigration system. When you're in a domestic violence situation, you're ready by default isolated because your partner makes sure the abuser, they make sure that you get isolated from your friends and from your family. And being an immigrant, odds are you already don't have your family near you. So you get in the situation in which you have this person and this person is messing with your head. If you depend on them financially, they are controlling the money that they give you. They're promising to marry you, but they won't, or they marry you and they don't file for your green card. There are so many ways that women can get stuck in bad situations and perpetrators, they will target vulnerable people and immigrant women are very vulnerable. I can tell you that I'm an immigrant woman. I was very vulnerable in my first years here in the U.S., nearly facing food insecurity and it's a it's it's a very when that guy or that woman comes along promising you stability and love and the home there's nothing more that you want than to believe in that and 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 embark on that and thinking that that's the next step of the, that's the next you know chapter of your life and so often that turns out to be just the nightmare you created a play and a bot explain just briefly what those were. So what I found was that when talking about domestic violence, it was very hard to get information, to deliver information to women who were in abusive, in an abusive relationship, because they are just watched all the time, right? There's so much surveillance, their, their phones are bugged, and that's true. That's not you know, being paranoid. There are apps, there are things, bugs that you can put in someone else's phone that will track that phone and will copy conversations and 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 send it to you later. So these people were extremely limited in the, how can I say, it was just very hard to deliver information to these women via just the most traditional ways that you can think of when you think about journalism, right? An article, a documentary, a podcast. We're talking about women who sometimes they 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 can't read something very long or they don't have the habit of listening to a podcast or they can't they can't stop for an hour to watch a documentary because they're at home. If they're stuck at home, everything they're doing, their partner is is they know what they're doing. So they can't risk themselves like that. So what I found was that there is this methodology created by a Brazilian theater. He was a journalist. He was a philosopher. He was a teacher. He was so many things. And he did so many things in life. And one of those things was to create a theater methodology that really puts vulnerable communities in the center and and promotes, seeks social social change through theater. So pursues social change through theater. And that is called Theater of the Oppressed. So I remember learning about Theater of the Oppressed from my theater years. And I remembered how powerful it was when I learned that in India, they were applying that methodology to discuss domestic violence and child marriage. Because this is a this is a this is a worldwide famous methodology. If you talk to theater nerds in many parts of the world, they will have heard about it and they will have been in touch with that at some point. So I remember that I had seen that and then I was, well, if they do that in India, why don't I do that in New York City? I'm just gonna get all these community members together. We're gonna make a play about this domestic violence issue that so many people are going through and we're going to perform it back to the community and 
you know, in the process, we're going to give them the information they need, all the legislation that exists to help them navigate a green card process that is tied to a perpetrator or a special visa that they can apply to if they're victims of a crime and domestic violence is a crime. So, you know, nothing better than a play to bring women together into a space. Nobody will ever have any any suspicions of a play come on a play is just a play what what right if you're if you're if you're the partner of someone and and you know you're just controlling that woman like that that woman's entire day and at some point she says I just want to go see a play you know watch the play and that's really what happened that, that's what happened wow. I put together the play with community members from the immigrant community, New York immigrant community, I ended up finding amazing actors that were working working as babysitters, as servers, <laughs> as dog walkers, and people who had, you know, won awards in Brazil for like a short film they did. Yep. And they were here and very eager to participate in this project. And and you know, the more we do the thing, the more I realize, wow most of these people have a, a story with abuse. They have been abused at some point, and this is why they came here, and this is why they want to do this work. So this is, this is where the idea came from. I wanted to find ways to give immigrant women from the Brazilian community the information they needed that was not reaching them because there was nobody reporting on that. There was nobody making journalism in Portuguese for immigrants in New York City. And I just found this way of bringing the community together to talk about this issue. And I had attorneys there. I had uh, therapists there. They spoke in between the sections of the play about, you know, the services they provided and all the, you know, avenues that they, that we have as immigrants, all the resources that we have, if we find ourselves in that situation, we don't need to suffer alone. We don't need to suffer silent and ashamed, which is what usually happens. Women in domestic, facing domestic abuse, they will at times be so ashamed of what's going on with them that they won't talk about it. So with the play, I made people talk because we have this play, which is a 15 minute play story about a Brazilian woman who comes to New York City and meets this guy and this guy is everything and suddenly he turns abusive. And, and the play ends in a moment in which things are getting really nasty in that relationship. And that's the moment when through this theater methodology, we invite the audience to offer solutions or alternatives for that story to take for the story to take a different course like what can we do different here in this play to help this woman and then people from the audience will come on stage and replace a character and try something new and we'll replay the scene and the actors will improvise with that audience member as they try to work on a way to get the person out of the situation. But in the end, that is a big rehearsal for the revolution as Boal, the, 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 the reality, the creator. Yes. The creator of this methodology. He said the theater of the oppressed is a rehearsal for the revolution because you're really putting people there for they, for them to experience what it is like to see someone going through a situation and you want to be an ally and you want to be an upstander and help them well guess what it's not that easy come here on stage and we're going to improvise with you and let's see how you do and then people get to express that and experiment with that and then you're like oh i thought it was going to be easier or i thought it was going to be harder and then we have a conversation as a community as what are the things that we can do is this a solution is this not a solution is there a solution that is supposed to be the beginning of a bigger conversation for people to start thinking about those things. And the chatbot was a counterpart because if the theater is an in-person event, is a offline experience, I also wanted to have an online solution that a person can access in the privacy of their home 
and in a way that is safe for them and in a way that is accessible because I've been navigating immigration for so many years. The lingo is maddening. It's so hard. It's not made for people to understand. It's made for you to hire an attorney to understand it for you. So when it comes to domestic violence and all the legislation and the things that you can do, you know, the lingo is also very complicated. All the, the green card process is complicated. All the stuff that you need to provide. What are affidavits? Affidavits, I still don't know how to pronounce that. So what I did with the chatbot, I programmed it using a very easy software that is doesn't exist anymore. And I learned about it at CUNY. And this is why CUNY was so important in my life. It really gave me the tools and introduced me to technology and empowered me to use new solutions and, and, and products that were not associated with journalism, at least not that you can not immediate, it's not an immediate relationship with, with journalism. So it really gave me the tools and the knowledge and the confidence that I needed to get creative because you need to be creative. Communities are different. They have different needs. And depending on what you want to do, how you how you want to serve them, different things are good for different things, basically, right? So the chatbot was meant to be a translator of the immigration legislation lingo that was so hard to understand, right? So we've spent about 30 minutes talking about how you got to this point, and now we should say where you work. You work at Retro Report, which we mentioned briefly at the start. What is Retro Report? Explain what they do. Of course. So Retro Report is a nonprofit, independent, nonpartisan news organization. We're based in New York City, and we make short documentaries for the internet. And sometimes our stuff also airs on TV. A lot of our work you can see you can see it on PBS. And we do have a culture of collaboration. We usually publish our videos with other news organizations to expand that reach. And by the way, everything is free to watch. Everything is on YouTube and on our website. No payalls, nothing like that. And the unique thing about Retro Report is that we connect past and present. And we do that in a couple of different ways. So a classic Retro Report that you see will usually grab a topic that is on the news, some something that people care about right now, or they're talking about, it's, it's on the news cycle. So they'll grab that and they will look into the past and search for a moment in history in which we had to deal with that issue. And believe it or not, most things have happened before and nothing is really new these days. So we go, we go, we look into the past and we explore, okay, who was involved? How does this issue start? What do people say? How was this topic covered by the media? Can we learn anything from, from, from the past? What, what, in that, what in that history can help us understand what's happening right now, right? And in that way, we give you the historical context that you need and you won't find in the in hard news and like daily news and rightfully so they don't have that time they don't have that space but we're going to give you that historical context that will help you and just help you understand the world today and why things are happening right and another way that we also tell stories we first go to the past and then we look at a topic that was on the news a long time ago 20 30 40 years ago that was dominating the news cycle back then and then we bring it to the present in a way that we reach out to those people who are involved and we ask them, so what was happening there? Those predictions, did they turn out to be true? How you covered this? Do you think you covered this accurately? For instance, you know, we all grew up hearing about the hole in the ozone layer, right? You stopped hearing about that. Why is that? So we go there and talk to the people who discovered it and was like, so what happened? What did you do? Is there any lessons that we can learn from what happened back there and can use it right now for, you know, in the context of our current climate challenges? And in that way, we're also telling you, informing you about this piece of history that will potentially 
offer lessons for us and will help us um, deal with the things that are happening right now because, you know, history repeats itself. It's just the way it is. Yep. And it says on the website, their work illustrates the impact of the past on the present. As you said, their goals are revitalizing history and civics education, providing nonpartisan journalism that is grounded in facts and creating media literacy tools. There's a lot of emphasis on education on the website. Some of the documentaries recently posted, you mentioned a couple. There's one that's up on the front page now, an explanation of the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action. There's another one about the relationship of Trump and the media. More than 250 in all, 10 minutes to an hour generally in length. What do you do for them? So I am their engagement producer, and they brought me on board in 2020. I actually got this job two weeks before the pandemic was declared, fresh out of grad school. And what they wanted to do was to investigate this connection that Retro Report had with teachers who were using our videos in the classroom. They have been hearing anecdotally for many years that some teachers were using our videos in the classroom because, you know, they're short documentaries, they are engaging, they're full of our archival clips, just like very rich of visuals and images. Our our filmmakers are like world-class journalists. So people are really using it in the classroom and they wanted to know in that context of the pandemic and uh, all schools were closing and then teachers were having to like learn how to teach over zoom zoom and skype um retro report was interested in 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 investigating like how we could help teachers since apparently they already liked us in this new moment in which all the teaching and all the learning was happening online so i was hired to look into that do research talk to teachers interview them Ask them, you know, if we come up with an initiative that will provide you with videos that are helpful to you, what else do you need? Do you need resources? Do you need questions? How many times a month do you use videos? Like, what are we looking at here? Like, do you always have a video to introduce a topic or do you use it for discussion or how does that work? So it was basically a bunch of journalists wanting to know what the heck teachers were doing in the classroom and how Retroport could be useful. And it turned out Retroport was immensely useful to specifically to social studies teachers. And now I mean, you, you you saw our catalog. We cover science, like medicine, uh, politics, history, culture. So we have videos on everything, every topic. Uh, the social studies teachers, they were really, they were like, our videos were a good fit for social studies classrooms. And with that, we launched our education initiative when I was three months on the job. And it's like, it was the first project that I that I did with them and it's still the main project that I work on since then we have grown so much we have approximately 20,000 teachers using our web going to our website checking out our videos we have um, a council advisory council with two over 200 teachers who tell us give us feedback about the videos and 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 this all works so well that at some point we even started taking into consideration the stories that teachers needed in the classroom when thinking about the videos that we're gonna create. And it happens, so it happens that my favorite retro reports came from teacher suggestions. And, and you know, it's, it's just, and it's just so great as a journalist I mean, you do your stuff and then you put it out in the world, right? And I mean, it goes on YouTube, it has a bunch of comments, fine. But now we're able to provide our filmmakers with comments from teachers and students about the video, what they learned, what they liked about it. And that is a whole other level of impact that our journalists didn't really experience before. And and it's just like, it's, it's, it's amazing. We are really starting a revolution, in my opinion. It's not because I work there. What we're doing, helping teachers, if you think about it, teachers, journalists, we're all, in, like, our job is to inform people, to serve society. And, 
you know, we're living in a time that with the information war, so much misinformation, kids don't know how to tell like news from like a blog post written by like some, I don't know, people with the person with the dark soul in the basement. <laughs> so it's very needed. What we're doing is very needed. We're bridging, we're, we're building that bridge that nobody has able to figure out yet how to reach young audiences. And a lot of people talk about TikTok, fine, that's fine. But how are you really making an impact and helping young people make sense of news in the world today? And um, I think we're doing an amazing, innovative and impactful job on that front. And in terms of uh, engagement journalism, it sounds like there's some kind of like there's user experience. It, like I'm I, in the world that I'm in, I just had conversations with people about UX, um, and like how, and that's essentially how people use uh, a website or a tool or whatever. Um, what other things make up engagement journalism? So I think a good like a catchphrase that engagement people who are listening to this are gonna you know like roll their eyes a little bit because it's been so much overused, but it's about meeting your communities and your audiences where they are, right? So just like I told you about my play and the chatbot with the immigrant women and how I found products that were that were taking into consideration their habits and their needs, not just what I wanted to do. Engagement journalism thinks about the community, thinks about impact. What does that community, what does this community need? How can I serve this community? How can I help them access the information they need to make better decisions, to have a better life, to be well-informed? So engagement always will take into consideration the needs of the audience and the communities. I say communities and audience because they're two different things, right? You can serve an audience. An audience can be composed of many different communities and you can be serving a specific community, right? And with Retro Report, we used to serve general news consumers and we still do that because, you know, the people who loved our videos, they still love our videos. Nothing really changed in the way that we make our videos. But we're also right now focusing on the teacher community, we want to create work that is helpful to them because they are forming the next generation. And we want to get our journalism in front of young people, not just so they can learn about history, be more engaged in the classroom because they're watching a video with this archival image and history is being brought to life for them in the classroom, but also because we want them to know what professional journalism is so they can tell when they see something that is just bs can i curse yeah yes <laughs> <laughs> all right so give us a recent an, an example of a recent day in the life for you i used to be a one person department and right now i have someone who works with me who i hired it was my first hire first time managing people and, and the education initiative grew up so grew so much that now we have also a director of education. So I'm not spearheading that anymore. I'm not, you know, the the not the the face of it anymore. But I am by all means I am in the backstage doing the research, optimizing our newsletter, editing our newsletter for educators, trying to understand the types of emails, the subject lines that they tend to click the most who the most engaged people are, what how, what ways I can find to like grow our newsletter subscriber list. We're now migrating CMS. We're like going from one CMS to a whole, totally whole different thing. So, you know, I also have to like think about what that new website should have. I have to think from the perspective of the challenges that I'm facing now. So... I look at the data every day. So, you know, I need people to spend more time on the website. I need people to click on more things. So how quick can we do that on the new website? And then at the same time, overseeing our social strategy, which I, I used to 
work more directly with it. Now I oversee it. We, I participate in our uh, video rollouts. So I'm always in the meetings, the rollout meetings, making sure that, you know, our headlines are optimized for educators that our partners know about our educational resources that we are launching in combination with a new video. Jeez, what else? We have- It's a lot. We have several education events. So I'm also on those events. I'm always trying to learn as much as I can about the teachers in our community. We have a teacher advisory group, like I said, over 200 teachers that receive a stipend to be in touch with us all year. Uh, let us know when they use the video, how they use the video, what they think of the newsletter, what they think about our social operations. So I am bombarding those people with surveys all the time because I need to know, do they like what I'm doing? Do they like what we're doing? Like, what can I change? What can I make better? So it's just a constant state of trying to make things better <laughs> and <laughs> many things, gotcha. many different things. What What constitutes success for you? So success looks like progression and evolution, which is not necessarily tied to having a project, nailing at a project like from the start. I think it's also part of success to do some things that um, fail. So you learn from those things and then eventually you start making progress. Um, so I think su success for me is looking at all these like projects, looking at all these projects that I've been a part of and seeing progress, even if it's like, oh, our traffic dropped, I don't know, compared to, I don't know, 2021 over 2022, what happened? Okay. I found a challenge here. I found an issue that I have to, you know, just invest some time. And then I go after the answers and I come back with potential solutions. So that to me is success, right? Even if it started because of a challenge, it's successful because I identified a gap or like something that isn't working or something that is it's just like investigating right I'm not an investigative journalist but um, investigating why a certain thing is not going the way you want um, and then actually having some things to try out um, that was a very long explanation that if I could summarize it in one sentence let's just do it success to me it's seeing improvement no matter the road that I'm taking there, if the if there's a lot of, you know, failing and, and, you know, just like holes on the street and it's a bumpy ride, but all that matters as you're going forward, even if you're slow down, if you're going forward, that's success. How do you view, as we kind of move towards the end here, how do you view journalism and the opportunities available to you as a Brazilian woman living in New York City in 2023? Well, it's the type of opportunity that I I don't think Brazilian journalists even dreamed about maybe 10 years ago, right? Being a non-native speaker from Latin America or any other country deemed as the third world or the, you know, the world in the development, that used to be a liability, I think. And now it's not. Now it's an asset, right? Newsrooms are extremely white in this country. They're extremely white in Brazil. I mean, white people control the world, let's be honest. And the fact that now newsrooms, not all of them, but a lot of them, are worried about making their staff more diverse because they understand that that brings more, just more ideas and more references and more wealth in, you know, lived experiences. 
it's 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 a great it's a great moment to 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 just be doing this and to be here but it's also there's a lot like there's just so much more that we need to do in order to make Latinos and people of color comfortable in the newsroom you know what I mean because even if they're like seen as an asset deep inside you know it's it's a challenging place to be right it's 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 challenging to be in any workplace you have your challenges but if you think you're lacking something or you don't really belong it just it makes things so much harder and i i do think newsrooms have a long way to go in making people comfortable and feeling like they belong the podcast is called the journalism salute we salute you for your good work and we ask that you do likewise is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work is there someone that you would like to salute for their good work? Maybe someone you do or do not know. You could certainly salute more than one. Oh, yeah. I will totally salute Jeff Jarvis for decades of good service to journalism and to education. If you're listening to this and you don't know who Jeff is, well, I feel so sorry for you. You should do some Googling. He's just amazing. He basically founded the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, now called the Newmark Object School of Journalism. He also created a bunch of programs in the in the school, actually the programs that the school is famous for, the entrepreneurial program, the engagement program, which is the one that I graduated from. And he really brought this new vision to a journalism school that students, journalism students had to learn about sustainability, business sustainability, revenue models, and the business side of 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 journalism, because we're just like, and 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 he was able to foresee that because things changed so fast, right? Journalism practically stayed the same in the way that, you know, the revenue model that they were on relying on advertising and all of that they were doing that for so long and then all of a sudden everything changed with the internet and it didn't stop changing that he was really on top of it and and he was making sure that the school was was bringing these conversations into the classroom because the new generation of journalists would have to care about those things and he was damn right and he's still right so you know, I'm an engagement producer, like, I, I have to be interested in my organization, as in, how, how is our budget looking? Like, how are we making money? Okay, how can we get maybe more donors? Or maybe, okay, the community that we're serving is not necessarily a community that we want to ask for donations, teachers are already doing a, a very hard job of like, you know, teaching kids and not making enough money for it. But what are the other people that we can ask? Like, I have to be thinking about those things. Every journalist has to be thinking about those things. Is this story, is this useful? Who's going to use this? Is this going to bring impact to a community? Is this going to change someone's life? Or is it just something I want to report on because I'm interested in this? So he really was the one who opened who opened, I think, our community, the community of journalists' eyes. He was one of those people. And one fun story that I have with Jeff Jarvis was that I was trained as a journalist, right? And I was, I left college in 2010. I remember Wikipedia was starting to become a thing in 2010. And, and I was trained just like my parents were trained as journalists, like how, how you interview people and how you're, you know, you're going for a story, how you already kind of know what you're going to be talking about. And the first we, the engagement program, it's three semesters. And there was a class with Jeff Jarvis in the first semester, the community engagement class. It was him and the director of the program, Carrie Brown. And they introduced all these exercises uh, for us to learn how to interview people in a more human way but if you went there as a journalist you had to unlearn what you have been doing your whole life because it was totally different like you were supposed to 
not take too many notes. You had to keep eye contact. It was a torture for me to engage in those in those exercises because I was so addicted to the way I was doing things. And it was, and I told him, I was like, this is really hard. I don't know how to do this. And then at the end of the the semester, like I really got the point that they were that he was trying to convey and they were trying to convey with that class, right? It really, you really need to focus on the community. It's not about getting your notes and like, no, it's about stopping and listening. You have to listen. You're, you can you can deal with the notes later. You're gonna, you're gonna figure it out. You're gonna make it work. You need to listen. And that is one thing that I learned, you know, at the age of 31, having worked as a journalist for almost 10 years. And I learned that from Jeff Jarvis. So thank you for everything, Jeff. He's retiring now from CUNY. But I hope, I know he's gonna be, we're gonna be hearing a lot about him. Follow him on Twitter. I mean, X, whatever. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> yes. I, I've never met him, but uh, I have heard many good things and certainly followed him on social media, we'll just say. He has uh, a bunch of books. His books are yeah. great. Gotcha. Um, Isadora, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in the future. Uh, we look forward to following your work. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure. If you're if you if you stayed with us, thank you so much. And I look forward to hearing from you. Please reach out. I love to meet new journalists. And Mark, thank you so much for doing this podcast too. It's so important to have a podcast out there to show people that journalists are people, that we're humans, and we, for the most part, have the best intentions possible. And it's so cool that you are, you know, elevating our voices that, you know, journalists don't really want to insert themselves in stories. So you only see the story, you never see the person behind the story. And this gives us an opportunity to show ourselves. And, you know, we're not the enemy of the people. We're not the enemies of the people. We're, we're good. We're good people. We're doing good work, hard, hard work, work that needs to be done. So thank you, Mark. I salute you too. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.